record on this. So let's dive in. I'm going to do a brief recap of what we've seen so far. Um, just to give you, not the 30,000 foot view, but give you the view from like outer space. So I'm going to try and summarize the first few books of the Bible in just kind of a, a sentence or even less than a sentence at some point. So looking at your Bible, if you jump to the beginning, you've got Genesis. And that's the beginnings, right? That's what Genesis means, the beginnings. Beginnings of everything with God's creation. The beginning of sin with the fall and Adam and Eve. And then the beginning of God's people. And then Exodus is where Abraham's family had grown into kind of a, a large group. And they're still in Egypt. And God saves them from slavery so that they can be his people and dwell with him. And then in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, that's really where we get the Mosaic Covenant. God's covenant with his people and the law of how they are to live in relation to him as their holy God. And Joshua, uh, Michael went through last week... Um, Joshua, Israel gets into the land of promise. And so Joshua leads them in. They conquer their enemies and they divide the land. In Judges, my professor at seminary used to say, if Joshua is where the people get into the land, Judges is where the land gets into the people. Like Canaan gets into God's people and they become, there's this, as Michael described it, a downward cycle of disobedience, discipline, and deliverance. But then in Ruth, Ben mentioned earlier, we have this glimmer of hope with the redemptive line of the king. And so we're going to be looking at 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And I've drawn them up here on this diagram on the board, and you can see the kind of timeline that they cover. And you'll see that there's some overlap there. Really, 1st and 2nd Samuel has a sequel, 1st and 2nd Kings, but then Chronicles kind of covers a lot of the same ground. And so in this class, we're going to kind of focus a lot of our time on First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And then I'll kind of highlight why, why is Chronicles there if it covers the same, the same time period and the same things that happen. So we'll look at that. We'll spend a lot less time on Chronicles. But uh, to give you an overview, you can see in your handout, if you look there, just if you, if you look to the very first line for each of the books, you'll see a short title for each of the books. So the first Samuel is the kingdom established. Then first and second Kings are the kingdom's fall. And then at the bottom of three, you'll see in first and second Chronicles, the kingdom renewed. And so this is really, these, these three books are really books about kings and kingdoms. Um, there are other important uh, elements to them, but Kings and Kingdoms is a helpful kind of title for all three books. So who, who would like to tr try and share some of the main characters that we hear about in these books? Saul. Saul, great. Yeah, Saul is important. Yeah, and some of them are on the board, actually. So <laughs> I should have left those blank. Huh? Samuel. Mm -hmm. Samuel, David, Saul. Jonathan, yeah. Saul's son, Jonathan. Elijah, Elisha. Elijah and Elisha, two prophets of the Lord. Solomon. Solomon, important, very important figure. Yeah. And so you'll see there's lots and lots of stories that will be familiar. I'm not going to be able to retell all those stories, sadly, though they're amazing. Even, even the prophets of Baal get kind of like three sentences or two sentences maybe. But... 
Um, one thing to make, uh, to make really clear up front is though, though there are lots of really wonderful characters in these stories, and there are some really wicked characters in these stories, but the main, the ultimate kind of main character that we will be talking about is that it's not really about these people, but it's about their dealings with God. And so God is the central focus of these books, as we'll see. So let's dive into Samuel, and uh, you'll see there on your handout, you've got some blanks to fill in. I'll try and make sure that I give you those, but if you need them, just ask as we go. So Samuel is uh, titled Samuel. Uh, First and second Samuel is really just because the book was so long, it, it, it needed to be written on two scrolls. It's really one book, so Samuel, the book of Samuel. And he was the one who established the monarchy, but he dies before even the end of 1 Samuel. So it's highly unlikely that he wrote 1 and 2 Samuel. We don't really know who the author is. Um, But one thing that we can see, so a simplified structure there, if you just look at the main things of of, uh, the first line, number one, Samuel, um, and then number two, is Saul, and number three is David. You'll see that we kind of summarized it by the main characters that we see throughout the book. Um, And so in in chapters one through eight, we really hear mostly about Samuel. And then in nine, chapter uh, chapter nine, till the very end of the book uh, of of 1 Samuel, we hear about Saul's reign. But I've cut it off at, at chapter 16 because that's where David is introduced and where he's anointed. And then we have um, the whole of 2 Samuel is really just about the reign of David. And so you'll see even like a book and a half of, the, of these two books that are really one. Most of it is devoted to David. And so really the book is all about David. You could summarize it that way. First, we have Samuel who is the last judge. That's the, the first underline there. But as we see this book, the way it's structured... Um, It actually has three really important poems that kind of bind the whole narrative together. And so we see those in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Uh, That's Hannah's song of praise. And that's an important section. And then we see in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we see David's lament. And then in 2 Samuel, right at the end of 2 Samuel... We have David's song of thanksgiving for his deliverance and his final words. And those are really key uh, texts, the, the three songs that are in the book. Those are really key texts to understanding the theological um, reflection of these stories. And so they're really key, important interpretive keys for this, this book. But Samuel, the book of Samuel describes the kingdom established. And so as we saw at the end of Judges, there's 12 tribes but there's sort of there's not a lot of unity there, but the twelve tribes are unified into a kingdom under King David. And so first we'll consider Samuel. As I said, he's the last judge. This is happening during the time of Judges, which concludes with the line, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So clearly there's a it seems that there's a need for a king. There was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And 1 Samuel opens with the birth of the last judge, Samuel. And we're introduced to his mother, Hannah, who's a barren woman. She cries out to God for, um, she cries out to God for a son, promising that he'll serve the Lord all his days. And God answers and gives her a son. And so there, under 1A, setting and Hannah's song is that blank. And then... 
uh, her song really is kind of astonishing because in this song, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, she, she doesn't really mention her son at all. It's kind of astonishing. The prayer, this prayer of praise really introduces the key themes of the whole book because she praises God for number one, that he exalts the lowly like Hannah, but he opposes the proud. He reigns over all. She says that you reign over death and life, poverty and riches, honor and shame. And finally concludes that God will raise up an anointed king. And so notice that she's singing. Her song is all about the Lord. And we'll see those themes uh, throughout the story, throughout the book. But especially played out in the lives of Saul and David. So um, Samuel... um, Samuel is born and he grows in favor with the Lord, but he's raised by Eli, the priest, whose sons are worthless and wicked. And so we, see, we start to see stark contrasts between different people in the, in the story. And God rejects them, but he makes Samuel a prophet. That's at the end of chapter 3. And then the story kind of interestingly changes in 4 to 7, where um, the Ark of the Covenant uh, goes into exile. So that's the blank there for undersea. The, uh, the Lord's Ark goes, goes into exile. Um, it's, a, it's a crazy story. Uh, God's people go to war with their enemies, the Philistines, but they're defeated. And on that day, Eli and his sons, they all die. And the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence with his people, is then captured. So the people, they had been using the ark like a glorified good luck charm, saying, well, just get the ark and we'll conquer our enemies. They weren't trusting in the Lord. They were using it like a chalice or something that would give them good luck. And, but instead of having victory, they suffer defeat and the ark goes into exile. So God's presence gets captured. It's as though God is suffering in the place of his people and he goes into exile. But as soon as he does, the ark goes to war with the Philistines. You guys remember this story that he's imprisoned in the ark is imprisoned in the house of Dagon, uh, their God. And they come back to the the house of Dagon and they find him decapitated and handless, lying down before the ark, bowing down. The ark is it's then passed on. They're like, well, we need to get rid of this. So they like ship it from town to town. And as it goes, it it starts to, to cause the people to suffer plagues, just like in Egypt. Conquering these people, conquering their enemies. And they finally end up saying, let's just get rid of this. Let's just give it back to the Israelites. Uh, it's, it's bad luck. This God is too powerful. And so God is conquering his enemies even without any help from his people. He's keeping his promises. Samuel judges Israel. He calls them to put away their idols. Tells them to serve the Lord alone. But in chapter 8, the people demand a king like all the nations around them. They want to be like the nations. God interprets this request to Samuel. He says, it's not you that they've rejected, Samuel. They've rejected me as their king. And Samuel prophesies. He warns the people. He says that the king you want, he's just going to take, 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 take. And then you will be like slaves again. It's as if they're going back to slavery. But the people, they won't listen, and they demand a king anyway. And so what we learn is that in Hannah, we see a reflection of the state of Israel, and even us, apart from God's grace, that we're barren, we're hopeless, there's no future. 
In Samuel, we see an anticipation of the hope of the fulfillment of God's promises to bring victory through the seed of the woman. And so there in chapter 8, what we see is a transition from the judges to the king. A transition from judges to king. So the second part of the, of the book, we see Saul. And he's a king like the nations. 1 Samuel 9 through 15, that's, that's where we see primarily Saul's reign. He becomes king in chapters 9 through 11. He, we're introduced to him in chapter 9. And he's the, maybe the first king of Israel. I don't know. Michael and I debated this a little bit. He said that one of the, judge, one of the judges' uh, sons, what was it? Abimelech uh, was, sent, was first king. But Saul's the first like main king over all the tribes. And the author goes to great lengths of describing what he looks like. Uh, he talks about how he's very physically impressive. He's wealthy, he's handsome, and he stands a head taller than everybody else. He seems very high and lifted up. But if we remember from Hannah's prayer, God brings down the high and he exalts the lowly. So we even see in this description kind of little triggers for us. Samuel gives a farewell address to serve the Lord. That's the next point in your handout. Samuel's farewell address pleads with the people, and especially the king Saul, to wholly devote yourself to serving the Lord and to not forsake him. Don't turn from him. He promises if they remain faithful, God will not forsake them, that he'll keep his promises, he'll, he'll be with them. But if they're proud... God will sweep them away and their king. And then as soon as Saul, uh, sorry, Samuel has given his farewell address and charged Saul to keep faithful to the Lord, Saul immediately disobeys. And so Saul's rejected as king. That's the next point in your handout. So Saul immediately disobeys. He's told to wait for, for Samuel to come and offer the offering to the Lord, but he does it himself. Because he's worried about the people leaving. He, he offers an unlawful sacrifice. Samuel comes to rebuke Saul. And here's a crucial moment for Saul. How will he respond? And Saul, like Adam and so many others before him, he shifts the blame from himself. And he even tries to spiritualize his sin, his disobedience. He says, I haven't sought the favor of the Lord. And so I forced myself to offer up this burnt offering. So God rejects Saul as king and he, he blames Samuel for not coming quickly enough rather than taking the ownership of his own sin. God rejects Saul as king because God opposes the proud and he exalts the humble. And so Samuel says in chapter 13, verse 14, now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul continues to show his flaws. He continues to show his foolishness and sin. And it's first brought into stark contrast with the faith of his own son, Jonathan. So Jonathan demonstrates great faith and he leads Israel into battle. And he says, nothing can hinder the Lord. Nothing can hinder him from saving us. Whether there's many or few, we can defeat our enemies. He believed God. On the other hand, Saul is waiting in the camp and then he makes a stupid vow that curses his army if they eat food, which number one, limits their victory. Two, it leads his people to break the Torah. They start 
They get so hungry that they devour meat with blood in it. And then it also curses his own heir and his own son in the process because Jonathan didn't know the vow and then he eats. And it's, it's a terrible situation. It makes Saul look clearly so foolish. But God spares Jonathan and he even grants Israel victory over their enemies. But it's not because of Saul. It's rather in spite of Saul. Finally, in chapter 15, rather than obeying the Lord, once again, Saul rejects God. He doesn't devote the Amalekites and their possessions to destruction. He spares the king and he keeps the best of the cattle for himself. And when Samuel comes to confront him another time, he comes out with a big jolly smile and says, I've done everything the Lord commanded. And Samuel says, well, what's that bleeding that I hear in my ears? What's this cattle that I can hear? Again, Saul tries to spiritualize his sin. He says that they were going to offer these as sacrifices to the Lord, not what God had asked for. God had said, devote them to destruction. And then once again, he shifts the blame. He says that the people made him do it. Saul eventually confesses why he's done all these things. He says, I feared the people. In chapter 15, verse 24, rather than fearing God, Saul fears man. And so Samuel tells him again, the Lord has rejected you as king. And so we learn from from this section that one lesson that we learn is, is that fear of man is a massive snare. Fear of man displaces God from the throne of our hearts and puts other people on the throne of our hearts. We worship and follow and obey them, not God. But we also learn that we must humbly receive rebuke and correction rather than dodge it or deny it or downplay it. Thirdly, we have the, the, the next main character, the main character of the whole book, really, which is David, a king after God's own heart. And that, that really runs, he runs, he's introduced in 16 and he runs all the way till the end of 2 Samuel. Chapter 16 introduces this main character, this human main character. And we have A, the fall, well, wait a minute, I've reworded it. So it's Saul's fall and David's rise there in 16 to 31. Saul's fall and David's rise. And the rest of the book of 1 Samuel presents the downfall of Saul concluding with his shameful death. God immediately tells Samuel to go to Jesse of Bethlehem because among his sons is God's chosen king. And God chooses the least expected youngest son, the shepherd boy, King David. And so unlike Saul, who everyone else assumed was, he's a good character, he's a good person to play king, not even David's own dad thought that David would be king. He's a a ruddy shepherd boy, not a tall, mighty looking man. But God doesn't look on the outside, he looks on the heart. David's anointed, and thus begins the tale of the shepherd, king, a man after God's own heart. David stands in stark contrast to Saul. Again, you see these stark contrasts that highlight important themes. David, in faith, defeats God's enemy, Goliath. But Saul cowers in fear. God exalts humble David, and he brings down proud Goliath, but he even brings down proud Saul as well. God is raising up his anointed king while bringing down his enemies. 
Saul's prideful rebellion becomes even more apparent through his treatment of David, even though he knows David is the anointed king. And whatever he does, in whatever he does, David succeeds because the Lord's with him. But Saul grows bitter and jealous and seeks to put David to death. But nothing can prevent David's ascent because God's with him. And the rest of 1 Samuel chapters 18 to 31 reflect this rising conflict between David and Saul. And over and over again, Saul seeks murder. And over and over again, David extends mercy. David, the persecuted king, draws the lowly and the needy and the outcasts to himself. But Saul remains haughty and proud and on the throne. His evil grows. He even slaughters 85 priests. So he starts killing his own people, including 85 priests of God. His evil reaches a high point when he summons, he calls for a witch of Endor, a necromancer, someone powerful in dark (coughs) arts of some sort, to summon Samuel's soul from the dead. In chapter 28. And to give a word from the Lord. uh, Saul is so desperate. He sees the end. And he's just doing whatever he can. But he he goes by evil means to summon Samuel's soul. But the answer is the same. God has torn the kingdom from you. Because of your disobedience. Even in this act of going to this witch. He's disobeying God. Alternatively David and his renegade band fight God's enemies and they save God's people and they care for the needy and the lowly. David has numerous opportunities to avenge himself, but he won't touch the Lord's anointed. And Saul sums up this contrast in chapter 24. He says to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And so 1 Samuel concludes with God's word fulfilled. Saul and Israel are defeated by the Philistines and Saul commits suicide and ends his reign in shame. And so then we turn to 2 Samuel, which is all about the reign of David. That's what the book is about, the reign of David. News comes to David, Saul is dead. And rather than rejoice, David surprisingly laments. That's where we have the second song. We find that in chapter 2 that weaves the narrative together. Humble David doesn't delight in the death of his persecutor. He mourns the death of the Lord's anointed. And the song highlights David's humility and his compassion even towards his enemies. David is directed by the Lord and he's anointed king first, the, 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 the first king. King of Judah, and then finally of Israel as a whole in chapter 5. And under God's guidance, and this is really key, David inquired of the Lord is repeated seven times in the book. He defeats their enemies, and he brings the ark to Jerusalem. He unifies the nation. He centralizes their worship in the city of Zion, the city of David in Jerusalem. But even as that is happening, they don't do it according to the law. And so... If you remember the story, Uzzah, uh, he is struck dead when he reaches out to steady the ark. And here we see, even as David is doing really wonderful things, that we see that even King David must live according to God's word. He must follow it carefully. God gives David rest from all of his enemies in chapter 7, verse 1. And David wants to make a permanent dwelling place for God. 
And at the climax of David's life, God makes a covenant with David. Stephen Wellam says that one of the weightiest chapters of the whole Bible is 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's the Davidic covenant. He says that all of God's promises converge in the person of David. The many roads of promise merge into one massive super highway of promise. So it's, it's hard to underestimate how important the Davidic covenant is. But the covenant is that he will make David's name great. He will appoint a place for Israel to, to live with him. And that through his offspring, he will build David's house, his kingdom, God's kingdom forever. It's like echoes of, of the Abrahamic covenant. That God will keep his covenant through this man and his line. And so David reigned over all of Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people, it says in chapter 8, verse 15. This is the peak of David's life. But just as everything seems to be going so well and God is blessing Israel through David's rule, David has a massive fall in chapter 11. He abuses his authority, he commits adultery, and he follows it up with murder. And we're thinking, oh no, not again. Just as someone seems to be faithful and good and true to the Lord... A faithful covenant keeper, he falls, he fails. Like Saul in his sin, God sends a prophet, Nathan, this time, to confront David. And this is a crucial moment in the life of David. How will David respond? Will he respond like Saul? No, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's all he says. When Nathan confronts him, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. It's amazing. He offers no explanation for his sin, no excuses, no finger pointing. He just says, I have sinned. Because David is a humble man. He's a humble sinner. And Nathan responds, the Lord has, uh, has put away all your sin. You shall not die. It's amazing. Immediate grace for David, even though he's done something so wicked, so evil. God extends mercy to repentant sinners. But God also swore that there would be consequences for his sin. God says that he will rise up evil from within David's own house because of his sin. And this is the first major crack that we see in the kingdom. And from this point on, there's trouble in David's house and the kingdom. Judgment that was pronounced is unleashed in chapters 13 to 21. David continues to have some victories, but there's war from within and even from his own children. Absalom. And there's war from without with the nations, the Philistines. Chapter 22 gives us the final song of the book. A song of thanksgiving for God's deliverance. And so, where is that? How far have you gotten... I'll give you some of the, the, the underlines later. But um, this last song, it echoes the very first song of Hannah's song in chapter, chapter 2 of the first book. God exalts the humble, he says, but he opposes the proud, just like she said. God reigns over all, even life and death, David says, just as Hannah said. And God will raise up an anointed Davidic king, he says. And then chapter 23 gives David's very last words. 
These reflect on God's covenant with him. And they speak of the blessings of a good and faithful king versus the curses of worthless men who will be consumed. But it's astonishing because that seems like that would be a good place to end the book. David's final words. But the book actually concludes with one final story. One final story that highlights David's failure. It talks about God's judgment on his sin. And it falls not only on David, but on all of Israel as well. And David again confesses his sin. And he asks that he might be punished in the place of his people. He says, they haven't done this. I've done this. Curse me. But God relents. And then David buys that very plot of land where he met with God. Where he saw the angel of the Lord and he builds an altar on that very plot. And that's where the house of the Lord will be established. God's temple. And so what do we see? We see that David's not the perfect anointed king. Through whom God would bless the whole world. But one of his sons will be. We learn from David that, that God extends mercy to repentant sinners. And we see that righteous leadership blesses those who are under it, whereas wicked leadership curses those who are under it. And so the melodic line for, for Samuel as a whole is that the Lord will reign through his anointed Davidic king. The Lord will reign through his anointed Davidic king. Tom Schreiner in The King and His Beauty says, one of the central themes of the Old Testament emerges in these books, First and Second Samuel. The sovereign rule of Yahweh is exercised through the anointed king of Israel. And so this theme we see is it's in these books, but it actually extends throughout much of the Old Testament. It's the hope that we see. And so um, some ways to get to Christ. We see that David is in the lineage of, of Christ. Jesus is the son of David. We see that in Matthew 1.1 1, 1 and Romans 1.3. The Davidic covenant, that massive chapter, 2 Samuel 7, is about Jesus. And the author of Hebrews applies it to Jesus in 1.5. David and Jesus have very similar kind of stories through suffering to being exalted in glory. David and Jesus are God's chosen king who are persecuted and rejected. And then in David's last words, we see the fulfillment of those in Jesus, the just king who blesses his people. So applications here, we see that we should follow God the King. That we should pursue humility and put to death pride. And we should choose our leaders carefully based on righteousness. Not on how tall they are or how impressive they appear. Or any other factors. So that's Samuel. Um, let me pause there and ask, are there any questions? Let me grab a, a little gulp of water. That's a lot of text. It's a lot of story. Any questions about Samuel? Any of you ladies been in the ladies Bible study? Dania, anything that stood out to you from that, the time that you guys... You've been going much slower than me. I'm kind of trying to hit the high points. Anything that stood out to you from that? Um, last week, we used to talk about the good luck charm that Saul uses. Oh. And uh, how he needs his uh, 
Okay. Yeah. To help him in the battle. Uh huh. He talked about Jonathan. He just had his uh, armor better with him. Yeah. And he fought the Lord because he had faith in the Lord. Yeah. How Saul just had faith in these items. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's amazing because you think like, well, the ark's good, right? And it's like, but he's trusting in these, these things, not in the one to whom they should point. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else? Could we real quick fill in some of these blanks? Yes, I didn't put them in my notes. I should have done. Where, where do I go? Well, give me a second. Uh, <coughs> yes, okay, the blanks. I'm sorry. So Saul's fall and David's rise is 3A. Do you need any before that? Yep. Yeah. Okay. 1B. <laughs> 1B, Eli's fall and Samuel's rise. My bad. And he literally falls, I think. So that's pretty clever, guys. Uh, the exiled ark goes to war is the next one. I maybe got that wrong when I was reading it out. Oh, the exiled ark. The exiled ark goes to war. That's bad. My bad. They're two different documents. I can't see them both at the same time. On my, I should have printed it off. But. 2B... 2B is Samuel's farewell addresses to serve the Lord. Any more? Yeah, you probably need more. 3B-I. David's lament. That's the, the second song. Yeah. God's covenant with David is 3 3 3B3. Three, three. David's glorious reign 8 through 10 seems to be going very 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 well. Then David's devastating fall or you could just say David's fall. Then David's repentance but sin's consequences. And then the last blank is David's song. A king after God's own heart. All right. Let's go. Did you get all of those? I can send them to you too. All right. So we'll jump into Kings. Back to my notes. So first and second Kings, this is the kingdom's fall. So you could call this book not just Kings, you could call it Prophets as well. So Kings and Prophets, because Elijah and Elisha make a huge, uh, you know, addition to this book, right in the middle as well, right in the center of the book, you have the stories of Elijah and Elisha. Um, we, again, we're not certain who the um, author was. I think Jewish tradition has it, has it being <coughs> Jeremiah, but I'm not sure. Um, now, it's important to note that this is written 
during the exile. So I, I put it here. It runs up to the Babylonian exile, but it's written during the exile. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's answering an important question for the people of God. So a question that would have crossed the minds of the exiles as they've been taken into captivity is, has God failed in his promises to Abraham and David? Has he, uh, has he forgotten those promises? And the answer is, not, is, is God did not fail, but the nation did. Um, God has not forgotten his promises. Um, so the structure of the book, we, uh, we have um, 1 Kings 1 through 11 is about the rise and fall of, of King Solomon. Chapters 12 to chapter 13 of 2 Kings is about the kingdoms divided and God sends his prophets. And then in chapters 14 to 25, we hear about the fall of Israel and Judah. So the kingdom divides into Israel in the north. You can see here on this diagram, when this kingdom splits, it splits into Israel. It's interesting because it's called Israel before, but that's because most of the uh, tribes go to the north. Um, and then you've got Judah in the south. That's the one tribe, the main tribe that, that splits off. We'll hear about that in the story. But the story of kings follows on from Samuel pretty quickly. And so David has unified the tribes into a kingdom. God's promised a messianic king to fulfill the promises to Abraham and, and now through David. But the story of kings tells the tragic story of evil kings leading to exile. And so we'll consider it in three parts. Um, part one, Solomon, the wisest king, with a question mark at the end. And that's in chapters 1 through 11. And so Solomon's reign, that blank there for 1a, is established in wisdom. His reign is established in wisdom. And so, Kings opens with the transition of power from David to Solomon. It's an interesting story of the transition of power. There's some shakiness there, but I'm, I can't get into those details. He's old. David's old. He's unable to lead. His plan almost fails. Uh, it's like he's losing his grip. But David's dying words to Solomon are to a charge to keep the Lord's covenant. We see that in First Kings chapter 2. And to deal with his opponents, which is also... They're kind of shrewd, like dodgy sounding things about killing certain people or making sure that you do the right thing to get rid of them. You'll use your wisdom to do it, Solomon, which is interesting. Um, but then in chapters three to four, Solomon asks for wisdom. And so Solomon, he uh, it begins. Chapter three begins with Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt in three one. And so immediately alarm bells should be ringing like what? Egypt's bad in the Bible most of the time. Um, but Solomon marries this Egyptian. But it also says just two verses later, Solomon loved the Lord and walked in all the statutes of his father, David. So it's a little like, hmm. Okay, there's just like little hints things aren't going right. The Lord appears to Solomon. He offers him whatever he desires. And Solomon sensibly asks for wisdom to rule well. And Solomon reigns justly over individuals. We see that in the story of the two prostitutes. You remember that? The two prostitutes with the babies? Yeah, and he rules well over his kingdom as well in appointing officials in chapter 4. And he even 
reigns wisely over other nations. In chapter, towards the end of chapter 4, we see that he's, he's accruing more and more authority and his rule is expanding. It's, it's pretty amazing. Does anyone know where Solomon's name, where, where, what, where that comes from? What Solomon means? Or where it, what it's derived from? That name. Any guesses? Peace. Why do you, why do you say that? Uh, I was watching a TV show last night. <laughs> and Suleiman. Yeah. Which is the Arabic name. Good job, Michael. Yes, peace. It's like Shalom, Shalomon. It's, it's, it's derived from the same name. And that's exactly what marked Solomon's reign. If you look in chapter 4, verses... 24 and 25 it says he had peace on all sides around him and Judah and Israel lived in safety everyone under their own vine and fig tree from Dan to Beersheba all the days of Solomon and so we get this summary of his reign it's a reign of peace it sounds awesome it seems like the promises of Abraham are becoming a reality under this reign of this Davidic king and in fact it seems almost like a new Adam in a new Eden, because it describes Solomon's wisdom and how he knew all about plants and animals and stuff, which seems like weird details, but if you realize like, oh, that sounds like the garden, Adam naming the animals and caring for the garden, it sounds like a new Eden and a new Adam. Then in chapters 5 through 8, God's house is built. That's your next gap there in your handout. Solomon builds two houses, in fact. They... uh, in chapters 5 through 7, you suddenly get detailed construction plans, which seems weird to us. But it's, it's detailed plans for the Lord's house. It's like the tabernacle plans that seem weird in Exodus. It's like being, uh, that were given to Moses. It's like a garden-like symbolic dwelling place, a new Adam, a new Eden, where God dwells with his people. Solomon then spends seven years on, on God's house. And he spends 13 years on his own house. Again, a little trigger should be going off a little signal and an alarm. Why does he spend almost twice as long on his own palace than he does on God's house? And why is his palace actually bigger than the Lord's house? It's a subtle warning signs for, for the reader that all isn't quite right. Solomon, though, dedicates the temple. It's a glorious dedication. You should read what Solomon says. It's like the longest speech in the whole book, I think. And one of the major themes there is that God does what he says. God is doing what he says he would do. God keeps his word. In 856, Solomon says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people. Rest, again, think about Genesis According to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all of his good promises, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And chapter 8 concludes this section with a summary stating that everyone was joyful. Everyone was glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to Israel through their king. But then in chapters 9 through 11, Solomon's reign ends in wickedness. That's your next underline there. It ends in wickedness. While Solomon's reign started strong and in wisdom, it ends in wickedness. There are hints throughout that all is not well, but they become crystal clear by chapter 11. First, God reaffirms 
his covenant with Solomon. The Lord appeared to Solomon in chapter 9 and a second time. So he appeared to him first and offered whatever he wanted. He said wisdom. And here he uh, 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 appears a second time. He reaffirms the covenant that he made with David. It seems good. He promises an eternal kingdom for obedience, but a strict warning of exile and destruction for disobedience. And then the rest of 9 through 11 is really Solomon's apostasy. So Solomon prospers. He even has foreign rulers like the Queen of Sheba marvel at his uh, blessings from the Lord. The blessings that God is giving through his king. But to see that not all is not well, we must recall what God's law concerning Israel's king said in Deuteronomy. And so Deuteronomy chapter 17 is a key text for understanding these narratives. In fact, Deuteronomy is helpful to understanding all of First and Second Kings. It's kind of like the backdrop to all of First and Second Kings is the, is the second giving of the law, the, the law covenant, the covenant that God gave to Moses. In chapter 17, it says that the king must not acquire many horses for himself. He, he, he would cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said, you shall never go that, that way again. And the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. It says instead that the king should write a copy of the, of the Torah. He should write the law. He should meditate upon it. He should know it. He should embody it. He should live it. And it's, it's not that God doesn't like horses and foreigners or money. But that each of these represents an opportunity to turn from trusting in God. To trusting in human might or alliances or wealth rather than God. But what does uh, what does uh, Solomon do in chapter 10, verses 14 to 25? He acquires excessive gold and silver. In, in chapter 10, verses 26 to 29, he goes back to Egypt to buy horses. And then in chapter 11, turn to uh, 1 Kings chapter 11. Here it becomes crystal clear. What was only kind of subtly mentioned becomes crystal clear in chapter 11. Says now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. It says, For when Solomon was old in verse 4, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. And so God then in the rest of chapter 11 raises up adversaries. And he promises to tear the kingdom away from Solomon's son. Leaving only one tribe for the sake of David and Jerusalem. The tribe of Judah. That's David's line. And what will we learn here? We learn in the life of Solomon that we must end well. Right? We must, if we start with following the Lord, we must keep following the Lord. We must persevere to the end. And we see in uh, so many ways that God always keeps his word. Whether blessings for obedience or curses for disobedience. And so the second major section is the prophets. And that blank there is the kingdom divided. The kingdom divided. And so in 12 through 16 we see the kingdom divides. Solomon's son Rehoboam proves himself a fool by ignoring wise counsel from the older saints in, or the older Israelites. Then 
and he follows the, the youthful folly and, and says that he's going to increase the burden. He starts to sound like Pharaoh when he increased the burdens on the Israelites in Egypt. And as God promised, the kingdom is torn from him. And all apart from the tribe of David, the tribe of Judah, goes to the north, to Israel. And so the kingdom split. Judah in the south, under Rehoboam, in Jerusalem as its capital. And Israel is established in the north, under Jeroboam, and its capital is eventually in Samaria. So when we get to the New Testament and you hear about the Samaritans, that's those northern tribes that have gone and mixed with other nations and all sorts of stuff. And so each king is evaluated from this point on in these two places, Israel and Judah, and they're evaluated based on God's word, on the law, and particularly whether they remain faithful to God, whether they get rid of idolatry, whether they keep this covenant. Now, both kingdoms are under seriously bad leadership. Both ignore God, they both ignore his prophets, until they both fall captive to other world empires. But it's especially bad for that northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, because they were cut off from worshipping God in Jerusalem. They, uh, the king there said, we, we've got to build places to worship elsewhere. Because I don't want people to go to Jerusalem and then go back to joining Judah. And so they build high places. And um, they even, <laughs> he immediately builds golden calves to worship God. Obviously, this is clearly reminiscent of Exodus 32 and the foolishness of the people of Israel then. They're just repeating the same sinful cycles over and over again. And chapters 14 to 16 list various kings jumping back and forth between north and south. And for each of these kings, it says something to the effect of, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We see that over and over again. It's a refrain every time the king's evaluated. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And only once does it say he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. One of the kings of Judah is described as doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And the last king that we see in this section in chapters 12 to 14 is maybe the worst. It's Ahab, the son of Omri, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab did even more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's um, in chapter 16, verse 30. And so we have the introduction of the prophets in response to this evil. Right in the middle of the book, the focus turns from the kings to God's prophets. And their main role is to simply call the people back to the covenant. The prophets are covenant enforcers saying, Keep the covenant, otherwise the curse will come, you'll go into exile. And so the first uh, prophet that we hear about is Elijah. And he is, uh, you can see the text there, chapter 17, all the way through uh, the beginning of 2 Kings. Elijah means, my God is Yahweh. And so even in his name, he's saying, Yahweh is, is God. And the rest of 1 Kings describes this the reign of Ahab and his evil, wicked foreign wife Jezebel, who institute worship of Baal, the god of the Canaanites, in, um, in Israel, in the northern kingdom. And so what we hear in these last 
chapters of 1 Kings is this, this war. It's God's prophet against Israel's idolatrous king. Or we could think about it in terms of theologically, it's Yahweh going to war with Baal. And so Baal, he was the god of storms. He was the god of rain and thunder and lightning and fertility. But God, through Elijah, demonstrates that Baal is nothing and that he alone is God. And so there's a drought and there's other things that show that God's in control even over Baal. And so Elijah does amazing things to demonstrate God's power. He's provided for miraculously. He raises the dead. He prays for no rain and it doesn't rain. And then he prays for rain and it rains. Yahweh answers. He calls down fire from heaven on his enemies and he parts the Jordan. And so we see even here some echoes from things gone before like Moses. And we see even some of these echo all the way through to the New Testament and the life of Christ and his ministry. But most famously, as Kate mentioned earlier, one of, one of the favorite Old Testament stories is Elijah challenging. It's one guy against 450 prophets of Baal to contest to see whose God is real. Is the Lord real or is Baal real? And the Lord shows that he alone is God. But no matter what the people do, they still forsake the Lord. And Elijah's time comes to an end. He's taken to heaven in chariots of fire, and another prophet is raised up in his place and takes his place. And that's Elisha. And so Elisha, his name means my God is salvation. And he's like a new Elijah. But he asks for a double portion of the spirit that was on Elijah. And so chapters 2 to 14 of 2 Kings recount twice as many miraculous account, uh, acts that Elisha does. He does twice as many as Elijah, but in the end, he too fails to turn the people back from apostasy. And so we learn from these two men that the Lord is God alone. The Lord is God alone. And we learn that powerful prophets are not enough to keep the people faithful to God. No amount of miraculous signs and wonders will turn their hearts back to worshiping the Lord for long. And we even see what we've seen in Kings is, you know, in Judges, there was that refrain that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. A king doesn't help the people and even God's prophets don't really help the people. Their problem is far deeper than needing just a, a good king or a good prophet. And so we get to the third part, judgment, and that's the kingdom falls. That's that section there, three. The kingdom falls. And so there we see the fall of Israel in chapters 14 to 17. And we see the fall of Judah in chapters 18 till the end of the book almost. And so the way the stories of the kings are presented now begins to speed up. We went very slow with Ahab. There's multiple chapters over his reign and how evil he was and Elijah's fighting him. But now they, they start to speed up and it's just like coup after coup after coup. They get killed. They kill each other. It's clearly not good. And, it, and it, they keep being evil, ending in the fall of Israel. And chapter 17 gives a summary. It tells us that this happened at the end of 17, that this happened because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they feared other gods. And they refused to listen to God's prophets. The fall of Judah 
These last chapters trace the last kings of the southern kingdom, Judah. And again, most of the kings are described by the refrain, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. We see that over and over again. There's only a couple instances where someone is actually a good king. And even the good kings, they stand out by highlighting how evil Israel was. So, for example, in chapter 22 and 23, we hear about Josiah. He stands out as a really faithful king. He repairs the temple. It was in disarray. He finds the book of the law. He reads it for the first time. He's sorrowful. He's broken. He repents. It had been missing. It had been forgotten. They didn't even know what God's law was. And, of course, the king was supposed to have a copy and read it himself. Now he finds it. Um, And so he goes and inquires of the Lord. He knows God's angry with us. He just by reading the, the law. He says, for great is the wrath of the Lord against us because our fathers haven't obeyed. And God says he's right, but that because of what Josiah's done, he'll delay his judgment because of Josiah's repentance. But that judgment is still coming and that Judah will go into exile. And it's astonishing that for the very first time in the history of the nation, they actually celebrate the Passover. Can you imagine that? That they never kept the Passover before this. And so the book that started with Solomon building a glorious house for the Lord ends with the Lord tearing the house down and it burning to the ground. The Babylonian army conquers Judah. It burns the temple. But right at the end of this book, we get a little post-credit scene. You know how in all the Marvel movies you get after the... After the credits, you get this kind of like post-credit scene. And this is hope for the Davidic king. The last four verses skip forward 37 years into the exile. And they describe how the heir of the throne of David was graciously freed from the prison. And he was given a seat at the king's table. And the author is giving us an amazing glimmer of hope that despite the division of the kingdom, despite the judgment of exile, despite the failings of almost every king, God is still protecting the Davidic line, the line that he has sworn will have an everlasting kingdom and will sit on the throne of God forever. So there's still hope. And that's the message of kings for those that are in exile, that are enslaved. The melodic line there you see is the Lord hasn't failed his people, but led by wicked kings, they failed him. And so as he promised, they've been exiled. And you could add on the end, but there's still hope. And so there we see lots of ways to get to Christ. The temple is a, that frames the whole book, the temple being built and then the temple being destroyed is obviously a type of Christ. We see that in John chapter 2 verse 21. Jesus is God's true king of peace. Even Solomon, who reigned in peace, it described him that way, but he ended miserably. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of the perfect king of peace. And he's the perfect prophet. He is the prophet um, in the likeness of Moses, who knew God face to face. So what's the application? God does what he says he'll do, so we should believe his promises. Even promises of judgment, we should believe them. And we should remain faithful to the Lord, resisting temptation. That's not what Saul did, right? He didn't resist temptation. And we should endure trials, just like David and the prophets did. And so that's 
that is Kings, and we are at 11.07, so a little after the time. But um, any questions at this point? Any questions about Kings? Or anything that I've said? Um, Yeah. Uh, Does his life kind of lose... Does it make his Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, like those kind of literature, does it lose authority because of his life? How do we read those books? Well, that's a good question. Does does Solomon's writings lose any authority because because he's wicked, you know? And he ends badly, at least in the story of 1 and 2 Kings. I think Michael and I were talking about this this week. Ecclesiastes... Um, which is attributed to Solomon by most people, is, um, seems like a reflection of a life that was foolish and squandered in terms of pursuing, you know, he talks about the things that he pursued in order to, to find kind of uh, satisfaction or joy in life. And then he sort of says at the end, this is the end of the matter, fear God and keep his commands. And so there's, it's a possibility that at the end, Solomon um, repented. And that Ecclesiastes kind of reflects that. In terms of First and Second Kings, it doesn't present the story that way, right? And I think that the purpose of that is to kind of answer that question, like, has God failed us? And it's like, no, we failed him. And so it really highlights the kind of the failure of Solomon and the failure of these kings. Um, but no, I don't think we lose the authority because everyone that wrote scripture was a sinner. Everybody, uh, Jesus didn't write any. Um, with his hand, and so everybody that's written scripture is a sinner. Even David, is, who's a great king and wonderful example, he's a failure too. I mean, he does some of the grossest stuff. And so I think it's the ultimate author of these books is God by his spirit. And so we get the inspired word of God when we hear them. Not ultimately the words of Solomon, although he wrote them. Uh, we, yeah, and so hopefully that answers your question. But it's, it does make me wonder... I wish I knew more about, like, what happened to Solomon. Like, did he repent at the end? Because, like, it looks bad when you read this, uh, this book. But good question. Great question. Any others? Is resisting temptation. Sorry? Resisting temptation. Yeah. What is that? I don't know. Oh, resisting temptation? Yeah. So, that means kind of, like, fighting against the temptation to sin. And so in, in uh, Saul's life, he knows what's right, but he gives in to his fear of man. He gives in, he regularly kind of just does what he knows the Lord has not told him to do. Um, and yeah, so that's what resisting temptation means. Okay, let's go on to Chronicles to end. And so this is much shorter because the story covers a lot of the same content even some of it is even word for word the content of kings in some places and so why do you think that we would have a retelling of this history any ideas any guesses any thoughts how would you get a second telling of the same history I mean, just an idea, but like, 
in literature when we see repetition, like I teach my kids, like the repetition is for emphasis. So okay. Yeah. So kind of emphasizing perhaps, emphasizing certain elements. Yeah. And where they overlap, that might be a good, a good thing to think about. Like what, what do they repeat? Yeah. Good. Any other ideas? Aren't many of the sections of Kings also expanded into Chronicles? There's some additional materials, but there's also some materials taken away, which I'll talk about in some of the differences, which might be worth jumping into that. So um, the structural stuff, so you've got First Chronicles 1 to 9 um, is genealogies. So that's part of the new material, right? So genealogies is that first space on your on your sheet, and you've got, you'll see that Adam to Abraham, and then you've got Israel, the 12 sons of Israel and their tribes. You've got, um, and I'll give you some of those gaps as we go, but um, yeah, you've got like nine chapters of genealogies, and then you've got, in chapters 10 to 2 Chronicles 9, you've got David and Solomon's reigns, which we've already talked about some, and then 2 Chronicles 10 to 36... Um, we've got the fall of Judah. The fall of Judah. That's the last gap, number three, there for you. I'll fill in those other ones as we go. Um, So, Chronicles traces huge portions of the history we've already seen in Kings. And rather than revisit it, I want to point out a few of the key differences between them to see how that contributes to the author's aim in writing this book. And so sometimes authors might cover the same material, but they might have a different goal in mind, a different aim for why they're writing. And so this is not just a repeat, and this is not just purely history. These are historical books, right? But as we've seen, they have theological points to them. They have a point to teach us something. It's not just recounting what happened. And so the differences, one of the big differences is, number one, genealogies, question mark, It's not the best way to start a gripping story, right? Why do you think that they would start this book with nine chapters talking about this person had these sons and this son and this son and then he had these sons and then this son and this son? Seems kind of strange. It It doesn't grip us. And maybe if you get to this point in your Bible reading plan, those nine chapters, you're like, oh my goodness, what is the point of all this? Well, actually, they're really fascinating. And as I studied them this week, I was really moved by them, in fact. But um, does this sound familiar to any other parts of the Bible? Can you think of other parts with genealogies? Sorry? Numbers? Matthew. Matthew. Beginning of Matthew is about genealogy. Is a genealogy of Jesus, Yeah. Yeah, well, not just before Noah in Genesis. Actually, Genesis has lots of genealogies in it that actually kind of break up the book into its structure. And the genealogy here, as you see in your handout, starts with Adam. and starts with Genesis 1-1, you know, or at least uh, the end of chapter 1 with Adam being created. And you get all the way to Abraham in the first chapter. So that's some of Genesis. And then the 12 tribes of Israel... And so the author lays out nine chapters of genealogies, which run from Adam all the way to, if you look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 34, you see the returned exiles. So what he's doing is, even from that, you can see when was Chronicles written. 
If the exiles have returned, it's not during the exile, it's after the exile. And so it's answering different questions that are in the mind of the uh, people of God. And so it traces the, the lineage from Adam all the way to the return of the exile. And it zooms in, actually, the genealogies. They don't include every single person, but they zoom in on Judah and specifically David's line. So chapters 2, 3, and 4 are all about the genealogies of Judah. It traces that to several generations after the exile. And so we see that this is, this is tracing God's people post-exile, back in the land, having been in exile for 70 years, all the way back and connecting them with key figures from before the exile. To Adam, to Abraham, to David. Of course, we should be thinking the covenants. These promises, these covenants are for God's people, even after they failed, gone into exile, and then been brought back. And the zooming in on Judah and zooming in on the line of David and tracing his line to maybe, I think it's five or six generations after the exile, is saying, this is the line of promise. This is the hope for us. This is where the messianic king is going to come through. He's coming through this line. It's amazing. To read the genealogies was really wonderfully devotional to me this week. Actually, which I never thought I would say. Reading genealogies at the beginning of Chronicles is really wonderful. But I was really moved by it. And so we see that this book is written after the exile. Because look, we, it, it, it traces all the way. goes all the way back to Adam. And it comes all the way to, it, it mentions people even after the exile. So I should even draw a dotted line over here. But... Um, uh, and the, and the important, another important thing to note is that Chronicles actually concludes the Hebrew Old Testament. And so the Jews, if you went to a Jewish synagogue and you got their Bible, their Old Testament, you'd find Chronicles as the kind of capstone to the Old Testament. And so he goes from Adam all the way to the end of their Old Testament Bible. And then there was, of course, 400 years without God's word. And so this is really crucial to see that this is kind of a theological reflection on the whole of the Old Testament in Chronicles. And so that's why we have genealogies. They're wonderful. I encourage you to spend some time reading them. They're kind of interesting the way that they're organized. It's kind of fascinating. I still haven't studied it enough. I want to do it more. The second difference is this kind of a perfect David. And so in 1 Chronicles 10 to 29... The stories about David are edited. And it starts with the death of Saul. In, in four verses we hear about Saul. It's, he's, and he dies. And so we don't get any of the stories that we got in 1 Kings. About David fleeing from Saul. We don't get any of the story about David's fall. We, he omits David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And the chronicle actually adds new stories Two, adds more information that one of, one of you mentioned earlier. He mentions a lot of information about David's preparations for the temple, his divine plans for God's temple, even though he didn't get to build it. He prepared a lot for it. And this is not just to try and flatter David. He's, he's long dead. He's not trying to flatter him. And you can read about his sin elsewhere. He even mentions in the Chronicles that you can read about this in these other places. So he's not hiding the fact that David was a sinner. These stories are written with the intention 
to build the anticipation of a future messianic king who is the perfect David. That is the point of of Chronicles is to see, help the people see the promises that were made are for you and there is hope for the future with the Messiah. And so that's why David is presented very positively, always seeming to do well. Even Solomon is made, mentioned that way. Solomon's apostasy is not mentioned. And then number three, what about Israel? And by that, I mean, what about the, the northern kingdom? All of Second Chronicles, uh, one major difference is that there's almost complete removal of reference to the northern kingdom of Israel. And I think there are two very, very brief mentions of Elijah, although he's a major figure in First and Second Kings, right? And there's no mention of Elisha, and none of the kings of Israel are recounted. So why would, why would the author just ignore them? The whole focus, again, is on David. It's on David and David's line. It's the kingdom of Judah. New stories are included about the kings of the south. Both positive and negative stories are mentioned. Obedient kings that are in the line of David are immediately blessed by God. But unfaithful kings who lead Israel to follow idols, they face devastating consequences, resulting in their exile in Babylon. But the point of these new stories is to teach the reader to be faithful to God and his law as they wait for their long-expected Messiah. So what's the author doing? He's, He's reshaping the stories of the past to renew hope for God's people in the future. And the Chronicles are answering a different question than the book of Kings. They're answering the question, is God still interested in us? Are his promises for us? And the answer is yes. God will glorify his name by keeping his covenant promises to David. And that's the melodic line. God will glorify his name by keeping his covenant promises to David. And so how do we get to Christ? Well, I think you would have heard throughout my sharing of the differences that it's it's the future hope of the Davidic Messiah. We see that in the genealogies. We see that in the way David's presented. We see that in the way Solomon's presented. And even all the way up to this exiled line of David that returns. And so applications. God is faithful to his promises no matter how long it takes or how sinful his people are. He will follow through. So remain faithful to him in the hope of the future messianic kingdom. And follow the examples of those who were faithful from the past. There we are. That's uh, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles. Any questions? from the end of like second chronicles like where do they go from there because it seems like it's pointing obviously to something right yeah i think you're right and i think when we look at uh the new testament and the the jews uh even in jesus day where there was a long expected messiah right from the line of david Mm -hmm. and that when he shows up 
some of them are like he's here. Um, obviously, there are Jews who, are, who obviously the Jews would say no, he's not the Messiah. But I'm not sure what Jews would today, if you ask them, like, what do you think? What you know? What's how is that fulfilled, or when is that coming? I'm not sure what they'd say. It's a good question. Um, it'd be interesting to read a commentary of Chronicles that's written by a Jew and to read and see, like, what do they think? What, you know, or do, is, is, I don't think there's even a Davidic line, you know? I'm not sure, but good question. I'm just wondering, so, and I don't know, maybe this is, just, I don't know. Um, why do we put the books of the Bible in this order? Like, if they would have seen Chronicles as, like, the bookend of the Old Testament, why did we move it so it's not at the end of the Old Testament? That's a great question. Um, why did we? Why did the English Bibles have it in a different order? That I'm not sure. Michael, do you know why historically they did that? I, I could guess that it, it's because they're so similar, right? There's there's so much overlap. They put these historical books together. Um, this is tracing the history of this time period, but it's written much later. And this is tracing the period of this. You know, it's tra- tracing the same period, but it was written earlier. I think so they try to do chronological in the chron- English Bible. Chronological. So that's why Ruth is after Judges, even though in the Hebrew Bible it connects better with Proverbs 30, 31. Mm, yeah, that's right. Michael mentioned that there's a different ordering even in, in the Hebrew Bible of where they place Ruth. But I think honestly, it's chronological both, order. both orders are pretty good to look at. And they, they, all, they all connect. So in, the, in a sense, you, know, you can even see God's sovereignty in, in that there's two orders we get. Yeah. Although some would argue that there's an inspired order yeah. and uh, that we should follow that. And there's some logic to that argument because, you know, even in the way that uh, the New Testament authors kind of argue for things based on how they happened in history or when they unfolded, they're picking up things in chronological order sometimes. Saying, you know, for example, one clear one. But this is in a book of the Bible, not where the books fit. But, you know, with Abraham, like, was he declared righteous before or after he was circumcised? It was before. So we know that justification comes by faith alone, not by works of the law. So there's sometimes where there's a logic to the way things unfold in the, in the ordering, in the, in the chronology. Um, but, yeah. Good question. Um, honestly, I, I, I would need to do more, more study for that. To answer that well. Well, let me conclude there, and let me ask Michael to pray. Um, thanks for thanks for being here, friends.